0: Hello and welcome to this special podcast by the Freud Museum London. Uh, My name is Stefan Mariansky and I work here at the museum. Normally we use this feed to record our events and then we throw the uh, recordings onto the feed so that people can check out the events that we've held at the museum. But today is quite a special occasion because we're joined by Bruce Fink. Um, In the Lacanian community, Bruce Fink needs no introduction really. He's a practicing Lacanian psychoanalyst um, he He trained in in France. Bruce is well known for his work, really, and I suppose uh, bringing Lacanian ideas to the English speaking world. I, I think it's fair to say that you've you've done more than anyone else to um, disseminate Lacan's ideas in the British and American analytic. Communities. Well, as, I've had
1: help by some of your eminent colleagues,
0: and <laughs> and Danny Noves, of yes. Let's not forget yes, them as yes. well. Bruce is author of probably more works on Lacan than I, I could reel off. But but there's there's uh, Lacan to the letter. There's the Lacanian the subjects, um, the clinical introduction to Lacanian the psychoanalysis. There's two volumes of Against Understanding to name but a few, and and also, of course, the, the psychoanalytic adventures of Inspector Canal. But today, we're actually going to be talking about Bruce's new book, which is Lacon on Love. It's published by Polity, and it came out this year. Um, so, Bruce, welcome, and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Stefan. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, before we get around to the book, I thought it might be quite interesting to start just by perhaps... Uh, finding out a little bit about how you came to psychoanalysis. Everyone seems to come to psychoanalysis in their own different way and I was wondering what your story is there and and, and particularly how you became interested in Lacanian psychoanalysis.
1: Well that's a rather long story all of that. (laughs) Um let's say that um already in the 1970s um i think probably because my older sister uh, decided to study psychology we received psychology today at the house i joined the psychology today book club and uh, started ordering books by rd lang and various other people very quickly discovered psychoanalysis um when um I got to university. I was at Cornell, which is not a very analytically oriented program. But in the 1970s, we were still lucky enough to have people who were influenced by analysis. So I was able to study some Freud and some Bruno Bettelheim. And I was very disappointed with the rest of the psychology (laughs) curriculum there. I never majored in psychology in in America and... um, um, I, uh, eventually heard about Lacan through some friends who were studying Anti-Oedipus by Deleuze and Guattari, and, um also I was reading a lot of work in the uh, critical theory field, Adorno and Horkheimer, and there's a lot of references to Freud there, and, um not to Lacan, but uh, somehow just I came across him quite a bit in my reading at that time. And I had a friend who was rather a fanatic about Lacan already. (laughs) Uh, Must have been around 1980. I sat in on a class at Cornell that was taught by a friend of mine, Richard Klein, who's a friend of mine now anyway, um, who uh, edited a journal called Diacritics, and uh, he had studied with Derrida in um, in Paris, and he had actually been at the John Hopkins conference where Lacan gave that. Unpronounceable uh, talk on otherness as an in inmixing, or whatever something as an in inmixing of otherness, and so. Gosh. And um, uh, so he was familiar with Lacan, and uh, that was the first real sort of structured work that I did on Lacan. And um, I decided it was uh, intriguing, even if I did, <laughs> certainly couldn't have said that I understood much at that time. The only thing available in English was um, the little, the old selection of the Ecree and um, Seminar 11. But it was intriguing enough to me that I went and spoke with the only Lacanian in in the United States at the time, Stuart Schneiderman, who was living in New York, who had done his analysis with. with Lacan and he encouraged me to stay in New York and study with him and I said mm, I, I don't speak French yet and I think most of Lacan's work is in French um, I think maybe I should go over there and um, so uh, you know that's the short story in a way of how <laughs> how I wound up getting interested in Lacan and I went over uh, not exactly on a lark but I thought oh maybe I'll stay a year and ended up staying 7 years <laughs>
0: You know, so, <laughs> so it is yeah. it's interesting though that there are quite a few radicals in this story and Lacan's often a lot of people gravitate towards Lacan as being a bit of a radical figure But you 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 you've started you know getting the psychology magazine and and almost immediately start reading Lang and then Deleuze and a away into to Lacan's kind of interesting as well because um, that they, they didn't have many nice things to say about him
1: exactly um but you know, the more you say nasty things about people, the more interesting maybe they become <laughs> somehow. You know, if if he gets under their skin to that extent, maybe there's something. You know. To look at there. So I—that's I, true of Freud, I think, as well. You know, there are, there are so many people who hate Freud and bash Freud, and some—and with a passion. And I think that's where the passion is. That's—that's that's where you need to look. You sometimes wonder about the sort of—it
0: um, was uh, wasn't it Richard Webster and the other one who. Um, who who seem to have dedicated their whole careers to 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 debunking freud (laughs) and you've got to ask yourself what sort of person is going to really kind of singularly pursue that vision what's at stake there seems to be a way that a lot of people arrive at psychoanalysis is through the critics of course yeah um i I wanted to come around to to Lacan on on love um I think that this was just um, quite typical of of your books in that it's just so readable. It's it's, it's it's it really jumps off the page, and one of the great pleasures I think of reading the book was that even though, in a sense, there are these kind of usual suspects like, like Shakespeare and the Bible. And, you know, let, let's talk about um, Jane Austen, but as well as, as as Shakespeare and so on, we've got Diana Ross and Joni Mitchell and right. Tina Turner.
1: Right, Shakespeare's referen- uh, Shakespeare's Freud's references were often more opera and that sort of thing, but I'm not really much of an opera buff, and so, you know, I grew up with rock and roll and folk <laughs> songs and, you know, jazz and so on, so that's... I, I sort of take my uh, my bard references from them.
0: <laughs> you, you still manage to get Wagner in? I, I guess, I forget about that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What really comes through from that, as, as well as not to mention some really interesting clinical um, insights, is that it must have been quite an enjoyable
1: book to write. It was, uh, although the prehistory of it was rather complicated because um, I had been wanting to write a book on love for some time and I'd been reading a lot of literature, you know, going back to Ovid, but also um, a lot of French literature from the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries and so on, and reading a lot about the courtly love tradition and so on. I could never figure out how to write a book on love. Love just seems to me to be such an enormous topic. It embraces so many things. And, um, there's so much controversy about, well, what is real love? What is true love? Um, that's not really love. This is really love. Um, and uh, there's the philosophical tradition, the theological tradition. So in the end, I ended up uh, writing novels, uh, novelistic stories about love. And most of the stuff that I've done in the Inspector Canal stories were in lieu of writing a book on love, which I was planning. I kept writing new tables of contents over and over <laughs> again, sketching out early chapters, and could never figure out a way to somehow bring it together. Mm-hmm. Uh, then... Um, I started working on this idea of talking about love in the symbolic, the imaginary, and the real, and was teaching quite a bit of Freud's early papers on love and so narcissism and some. It's you know I can't say that it's the most coherent of my books, but. A lot of them are a bit of bric-a-brac, you know, um, the Lacanian subject as well. It's this topic, I gave a lecture here, then another topic, and another... I try to bring it all together and make it into sort of a a coherent narrative, but um, this one as well, you know, it's about Freud for a couple of chapters, then it's about Lacan, then it's about Freud again, then it's about Lacan. Um, Plato, you know, sort of has (laughs) usurped a lot of the room in the book, and then... (laughs) I couldn't figure out how to bring in some of the literary discussions and the discussions of all the different terms that that, that gravitate around love mm. so I just turned these things into separate um, chapters and I hope it works for the reader uh, so there's just so much in the
0: book you you're exploring all kinds of different avenues of of what love might be and you say very clearly towards the start, that, that there's no singular theory of love in in Lacan's work. But one thing that perhaps comes through quite interestingly at the, at the beginning of the book is that love is often so so romanticized and we'll come to courtly love a little bit later Mm -hmm. um but it it it, it comes through um as a bit of a minefield towards the start of the book we've got dissatisfactions impossibilities Mm -hmm. debasement Mm -hmm. jealousy lack there's the too much and the the not enough so so i suppose as an overall question is sort of do you believe in a thing called love
1: (laughs) oh certainly certainly and um You know, in my own experience, romantic love has played an important role in my life. I think that's um, the kind of thing that many of us um, are looking for, striving for, um, um, mourn its loss when it seems to disappear um, or when it doesn't work out. um, And uh, and yet at the same time, I think... um, over time, I've come to realize the um, the problematic nature in some ways of romantic love, the degree to which it involves narcissism. Very often, we're looking for someone who we think of as a twin soul or someone who is just like us, our soulmate. Um, and you hear that a lot in literature. You hear that a lot in uh, songs, poetry, and so on. And um, so, as wonderfully exciting as it is, and um, uh, and as crazy as it can make us at times. You know, the more I've read Freud and the more I've read Lacan on the Imaginary, the more I realize that, and even Stendhal, you know, with the first crystallization, I realize, wow, you know, there's some, there's a kind of insanity, I think, involved in romantic love. Mm-hmm. And it seems um, that it's largely cultural and we put a huge emphasis on it well especially in american culture i'm not sure to what degree in uh, british culture but oh we do i think so too (laughs) we we just don't 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 talk about it (laughs) Um, so you know i guess i've come to see that you know it's not the only facet of love and it's one that we tend to put a huge amount of emphasis on and I've seen cases again and again in my own family and people around me and my patients of a kind of inability to find anything other in love than that sort of falling in love, the romantic, um, uh, passionate, most passionate aspect of love. And um, the things begin to fall apart when it comes down to love is giving what you don't have. Mm -hmm. And um, so a more symbolic component or It'd be great to
0: to come back to some of those ideas about the things that that Lacan takes from, particularly from the symposium. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if before we do that, because because uh, the the book is many things. So one of the things that you do is is trace out a certain history of love, or or, or one of many possible histories of love, and you, you point out that the idea of this kind of Insistence on a kind of symmetry in in love relations of a soulmate is quite a modern phenomenon. That that nowadays love might be more situated in the imaginary.
1: Well, in Greek times, you already do have with um, uh, Aristophanes' myth of the right that we were originally spherical beings split in half, and so we're looking for the other half. There, there's a kind of symmetry, obviously, but it's true that. Um, That sort of symmetry is perhaps more, more um, connected to our own times than, yeah. It was um, the idea, really, that for
0: the Greeks, for the ancient Greeks, it was something really different. And you talk about that in Greece, rather than this sort of the idea of a a kind of symmetrical soulmate, there would quite often be pairings involving a a lover and a beloved. Mm -hmm. So these quite set. Positions And I wonder if you could say something about how ideas about love have developed through the ages.
1: Oh, that's a big task. <laughs> uh, um, well, I think um, I'll just follow your lead because I think that's a good way of, um, of looking at it. Biblical times, I'm not sure what I would uh uh, say about that, but at least in Greek times, already as you said, there's a kind of um, uh, absolute heterogeneity, uh, between these two positions of the lover and the beloved, um, and um, and Socrates, in fact, uh, claims to be able to always tell uh, who's in love with whom, and mm-hmm. which one is the lover mm-hmm. and which one is the beloved, and um, and so there wasn't expected to be this kind of absolute symmetry or harmony um, that the beloved was also supposed to be the lover of the of the lover um, whereas I think in our times we think you know without that, how do people stay together right or that's what we're all looking for because as Lacan says, one of the um, one of the tricks is a way that comes to mind or one of the ruses of love is that to love is also to want to be loved and so even right. to demand love in return well that wasn't always so true I think um, uh, in a lot of periods um, it was quite well accepted that um, someone would be simply the object of somebody else's love and uh, there wasn't a big demand that um, uh, that person be loved in return and and um, there was there is a curious thing in the greek situation whereby it was expected you would be the beloved uh, when you were 15 16 17 18 and that as an older man you would become the lover of boys back at that so there was an idea that somehow you you made a transition from one position to the other but not necessarily that um, uh, that that existed in one and the same relationship Time. And the only example that we see which Lacan plays on quite a bit in what he calls the metaphor of love right, is when you have um, a Greek beloved Patroclus who then suddenly becomes the lover. But of course his lover is already dead at that point. So there's something a bit curious about that too. So there's, there's no symmetry there. There's no... Um, uh, then uh, in later traditions... Um, It's hard to say. In Ovid, you have a bit, um, you know, if there's a metaphor there of the hunter and the hunted. Um, (laughs) uh, And for a long time, you know, you have this position, uh, you have this, let's say, supposition that men and women who are more like men are usually the hunters. Uh, and they're often the ones who fall in love the most quickly Um, and then you have the hunted and that's considered to be more of a feminine position and even Mm -hmm. the the Greek boys in their teenage years are in a certain sense um, more like uh, women. So you do have these sort of fairly well-defined roles Um, probably that continues pretty well into the Middle Ages and then, of course, with the courtly love tradition, we wind up with a, a whole new paradigm, and I think that's why Lacan dwells on it quite a bit. Uh, there's a sort of um, a light motif in his work, uh, where It really begins or develops in Seven R Seven, carries through really to Seven R Twenty and beyond. Um, and I think he's uh, intrigued by it and a bit troubled by it, and you know, he's trying to figure out, well, what the heck is this all about? He brings in death and beauty and um, and so on, and that's what I spend quite a lot of time trying to fathom that tradition mm-hmm. myself.
0: Yeah, you you, it's, it, um, you you pause on courtly love and, and really go into it. Um, you, you describe it in the book as as a quantum leap that happened in the Middle Ages, and particularly in relation to the the status of of women in mm-hmm. love relations. Mm-hmm. Um, you've already touched on it, but but mm-hmm. perhaps we could we should pause on it as well and, and just want to. You know, why is the courtly love tradition so interesting to psychoanalysis? Could it be that it it, it resonates or echoes something that that you encounter in clinical work as an
1: analyst? Uh, I think it does. Um, I think that uh, it perhaps, and I'm sure there are exceptions to this. It's very difficult <laughs> when talking about love to ever say anything more or less absolute, but it marks a moment at which. Um, the very notion of a woman seems to come in a woman with a capital W seems to come on the scene. Um, It perhaps is paralleled somehow by the rise of the Virgin Mary in Catholicism. And what it leads to, it seems to me in the realm of love, and we still see it today is that the specificity of a woman, uh, the, the materiality of a woman, the real, psychological characteristics, sense of humor, intelligence or lack thereof or whatever of a woman is set aside and woman becomes elevated into a godlike creature um, who is endowed with all the virtues of beauty and truth and, and so on. Whereas I think in a Greek tradition, like woman as truth is really unthinkable. <laughs> okay, yes, beauty perhaps, mm. but truth. And uh, if you if you see films or you read books about the French Revolution, a um, um, uh, woman is elevated as wisdom, which is the precise opposite of the way you know women were thought about for a very long time. Um, and okay, you know, there are some Aristophanes plays where there are inversions, and the women sort of take over and you know are shown to be smarter than the men and and take power. Um, but there's a kind of idealization of women which occurs, mm. which I think has um, for, it's a terrible thing in a certain <laughs> sense for culture and for patients, and mm. it, uh, leads many men into a situation of, um, only accepting, only being interested in a woman insofar as she might embody those ideals. Uh, and having found a woman who embodies those ideals, then finding her untouchable in a certain sense or unapproachable. And so, um, uh, there, there's something in that courtly love tradition that I think has infected almost like a disease um, a lot of our thinking about love and our experience of love as well.
0: Um, you offer... Um, so various possible explanations of of the the origin of the rise of of courtly love and the rise of the woman with the capital W, mm-hmm. and one one really interesting one is is obviously that this all happens in in parallel with the rise of the cult of the Virgin mm-hmm. in, in Europe, and it, it's it's really interesting that that in a certain sense, and uh, obviously this is kind of speculation in a way, but that it seems to, in some sense, echo a kind of developmental trajectory that we find in Freud. Um, the idea that the, 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 the ideal of, of, of the Virgin as the Madonna figure is, is kind of produced at a certain point in development as, as one
1: goes through the Oedipus complex. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, it's sort of um, it's a, a retroactively constructed image of the mother after the fall of the mother, right. who is realized to have had sex with the father. Mm. And to map that historically, however, would be quite a task. But uh, you know to say um, that somehow there's a development of humanity such that somewhere around the year 1100. Um, uh, there's uh, some realization that could correspond to that. It's a very perplexing question, and um, uh, as I indicate in the book, you know, uh, probably um, a lot of people uh, of Catholics wouldn't like the the, the notion that that somehow this parallels the evolution of the Virgin Mary uh, in the Catholic tradition. But, I mean, I think it's quite clear, and I'm no expert on the Catholic tradition, but as I understand it, you know there were debates very early on in the um, in Catholicism. I think even up to at least the year four hundred, did women even have a soul? Right. So the idea <laughs> that you know the Virgin Mary could be elevated into a godlike figure uh, w- would have been impossible mm. at that time. And um, there clearly was a period in Europe where the um, the sort of uh, uh, the mother goddesses were. Uh, widely worshipped by the quote-unquote pagans mm-hmm. and there was a concerted effort on the part of catholicism to recuperate to um, to co-opt that mm-hmm. uh, that interest on the part of peoples and bring them into the church mm-hmm. sort of through the back door so to speak but there are other possible explanations as well that uh, for example and this is Something that couldn't have happened, I guess, in uh, English-speaking countries, not that uh, we spoke that, I don't know, it's hard to say what we spoke uh, back in 1100, Mm Chaucer's English, or um, but in a language in which you have law and law, right, you know, where all the way, every word has a gender. Uh, there's this play on the church right uh in, in the feminine which then becomes used by the cathars and mm-hmm. the courtly love tradition poets as perhaps a sneaky way of talking about a woman right uh, the church as a woman and so on as the wife the bride of Christ you know so there are a lot of different things that come together it's um, uh, maybe maybe one explanation isn't enough. Maybe you need several things to have come together to create this sort of the situation. But um, in any case, I think the effects of it are still with us. And uh, as analysts, we you know we still grapple with that uh, quite a bit.
0: And you talk about the um, just before we turn to the, the symposium, mm-hmm. um, you, you talk about the, the, what Lacan calls the problem of love, perhaps related to this kind of. Um, of splitting of, of of women into two different categories, which is a kind of very frequent clinical phenomenon in men and I, I wonder you, you also speak about um, the, the the seminar that your book is a commentary on on transference comes at a turning point in lacan 's theoretical trajectory, where it seems as though that the the theorization of the object A might actually offer us a way out of this conundrum.
1: Uh, could you say just a little bit more about the how it might offer its way out of the conundrum?
0: well the just idea? in the sense that it, it it seems as though that prior to this idea of the object a which we 'll talk about in a, in a moment that it's as if the partner in a love relation can only really take up the place of the the imaginary other the the sort of um mm. the, the sort of mirror image or this this kind of godlike um, unobtainable ideal. hmm um, and, and, and it seems as so though that that's really perhaps a problem that's that's being addressed and which the the, the object A has been theorized in parallel with.
1: Hmm.
0: Interesting <laughs> interesting <laughs> That's a very polite it's, way
1: of saying no, that, no, you no, must no, be joking. No, no no I think it's something to develop into uh, you know into a whole thesis. <laughs> um, yeah I never thought of it, I guess, as a um, as a way out of the let's say uh, imaginary and symbolic conundrums, right? Um, positions that people feel forced into by uh, the romantic love coming toward them from another person. Do I then identify with the ideals? Um, uh, with the ideal, do I try to become like the other person wants me to be? Do I try to embody, you know, this or that ideal of uh, beauty, truth, uh, wisdom, (laughs) um, uh, virtue of every kind? um, uh, Or uh, uh, the way I usually think about it is, you know, that object A is one component of love, which is um, there very often unbeknownst to many people when they first come into analysis, for example, and you ask people, you know, well, what drew you to someone? It's a question I always ask, you know, about everyone that they talk about, Mm. uh, especially the partners they're having the most trouble with. Yeah. uh, What initially drew you to them and so on. And I usually get a bunch of BS, sort of of speak, you know, about, oh, well, you know, um, uh, he was this way and he was that way and so on. And then, you know, later you get to hear that actually, you know, there was a certain kind of look or there was something about his voice or he had the same sort of chest as her father or something like that you know and so my tendency is to think oh well you know that's where we're getting in the area of object a and um so that's really what's motivating things and it was one of the things i guess which always happens with psychoanalytic concepts is um that once they become disseminated then the question is um you know can i do something to become object a for my partner Right. In other words, it's that, which is, you know, what Lacan says, that's what we all want, right? It's not enough for us to be an object of need or even uh, an object of love uh, from, uh, from our partner, but we want to be the cause of our partner's desire. So once we formulate that, then um, we may begin to think, well, let's see, what do, we, what do I have to do in order to become <laughs> the cause of my partner's desire? And um, then what does it mean to perhaps try to um, identify with that cause, right? Um, To make oneself into that cause somehow. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's something I have to admit I've never really given in much thought to, but Mm -hmm. um, it certainly provides a different uh, position. It's connected to... perhaps the hysterics position, Mm -hmm. right, to to want to be, to embody the cause of the other's desire. One of the traps, I think, as Lacan sees it, for the hysteric is to identify not with the cause, but rather with the um, all the ideals. And to he, in fact, I think, uh, seems to believe that uh, frigidity is often a result of that kind of identification with the ideals, whereas to identify with the object which is something which is not politically correct at all in our times Mm. um, because, you know, to be the real object that causes, you know, the other person's (laughs) desire Mm. somehow doesn't usually fit in (laughs) with... um, uh, most PC notions. Um, not to mention the law. <laughs> not to mention the law at times, right? But uh, I guess uh, we could imagine that it could be taken on, um, you know, Lacan, some of Lacan's later notions in the 70s with um, the partner as the symptom uh, of a man and so on, certainly go in that direction.
0: I wonder if we could turn to the symposium mm-hmm. because I, I, I suppose um, the idea of the object A um, doesn't tell us very much until we've had a look at the symposium as well and one thing that, that was really interesting about your book is that you give an overview of, of Lacan's approach to reading literary text so I was wondering if you could say something about that and also perhaps how it differs from other ways of interpreting text.
1: Uh Sure well um it's certainly a complicated question, and I think what we're most familiar with um, from Lacan regarding the reading of literary texts is the the purloin letter by Edgar Allan Poe, and his reading of that text, which is a very unconventional reading, I think already, which attempts in a, a rather a structuralist vein, um, similar to what uh, Claude Levi Strauss did. Um, with, I think it's called The Cats, or Les Chats Baudelaire, um, um, uh, a kind of structural analysis of uh, triangular situations, of scenes within the the short story, The Perline Poe, and coming up with essentially a repetition of three scenes with three different positions, with characters changing positions in the course of each scene. And... What Lacan is doing there is not um, attempting to somehow find the truth of the author's intention, but to look at a structure which is somehow making Poe write the story in this particular way, unbeknownst to himself. And I think, um, so the idea of, of a conscious intentionality, right, what does the author... Want to convey by a story, or what kind of impact does he want to have on us, is cast aside in favor of what's driving the author. What is it that he's doing that he can't help himself uh, but do? He he has to do it, and um, uh, and how is that useful to us in psychoanalysis? Then, insofar as we find the same kind of repetition of scenes, perhaps in our analysis, something something driving them so it's a use some people would say an abuse of literature uh, to try to um, be uh, Lacan attempts to use literature as a springboard for his own thought uh, even when he reads Claudel later in Seminar 8 and I profess that I have very little grasp of Claudel's work and of even what Lacan is exactly trying to say about tragedy Lacan is fascinated with tragedy and uh, for quite a long period in his work, especially in seven seven and eight um, and uh, talks about Racine in different places in Colne and, um, and partly that has to do with maybe mentalities. I'm getting off the topic of <laughs> I realize. Uh, but uh, um, but literature is obviously very important to him and again not in the sense of sort of like fully laying out, what uh, what a story is about and what the the author's even secret intention was, but rather to to look at what is making the author write a story in a certain way, uh, even though that's not necessarily what he intended to do.
0: And it's interesting that that also brings perhaps as, as a hint about how we ought to be reading Lacan himself because a, a reproach a, against Lacan that we hear a lot in the English-speaking world is, well, why doesn't he just say what he means? Why isn't there a coherent mm-hmm. Lacanianism? Uh, surely this guy must be j- j- just crackers because, because he never really says what he means. He t- speaks in riddles and his his work from beginning to end doesn't really
1: cohere and hang together. <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, and a lot of things could be said about Lacan and about uh, what uh, drove him to write in the way that he did, and um, some of them are rather superficial, and some of them are perhaps uh, profound, and some of them are uh, not very um, complimentary to Lacan, and uh, some of them could be... Um, uh, if you if you want to go into that, we could talk about that <laughs> to some degree, or
0: well, perhaps we, 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 I think that could be a whole other conversation. conversation but yes,
1: but we could talk to uh, a bit more about his reading of uh, of Plato, and I think um, what's astonishing about Lacan, first of all, is that you know sometimes uh, reading psychoanalytic authors' works, so I get the impression that they have encountered um, an author. And they think that they can use it in uh, the author's work in a certain way because they have that sort of theory in the back of their own minds and somehow it resonates with the author's work and uh, they go sort of straight for that and try to illustrate the idea they already had in the Mm -hmm. back of their own Mm -hmm. minds using the, the literary work. Lacan's approach seems quite different, and what's striking is that Lacan obviously had been reading Plato ever since he was in high school, you know, uh, the, the the private high school that he went to, and um, and so Plato has been in the the background for him for many many moons. <laughs> so this is not like he suddenly came across the symposium and said, "Hmm, I think I'll talk about that," <laughs> so, you know, uh, this year uh, and. Um, and he's very familiar with a lot of Plato's dialogues and um and Kojève uh, his teacher about Hegel also obviously was incredibly uh familiar with Plato and uh, Lacan even mentions in the seminar at some point yeah he just turned out you know several hundred pages on a, a platonic dialogue not not Lacan but uh Kojève and um, there's a funny incident where Lacan while he's thinking of working on the symposium goes to visit Kojev, and they have dinner together, and they're talking, and Lacan says, by the way, I'm teaching this symposium this year, and Kojev says, just as he's sort of ushering out of the, him out of the apartment on the way out there, he says, you'll never understand anything about the symposium if you don't understand our stuff, and he has the hiccups. <laughs> right? and that, you know, so it's just sort of this beautiful one-liner, which obviously intrigued Lacan to the point where he came up with a whole theory about the stuff, and he has the hiccups. And which leads to, um, I think, a profound reflection. I studied Plato for many years in uh, in college, and with all kinds of different professors, um, who all took it all very seriously, and who all thought um, that whenever Socrates speaks, that's the gospel truth that Plato is trying to get across, mm-hmm. and that... Um, the things that most other people say are more or less irrelevant, they're just a sort of an excuse for Socrates to to lay out his own belief system, and, um, uh, and that we don't really need to look that closely at the progression of the dialogue. And um, uh, now it could be the french tradition is a little different i studied with a guy named alain Badiou, a fairly well known philosopher at mm. this point and even before i had read uh, seminar 8 he was already always talking about the setup of a platonic dialogue how you know it's recounted by whom to whom who wasn't there who was there who who told it to another person and and I wasn't really sure what all that was about, but there was always a question of the staging of the dialogue and the evolution of the dialogue. And so Lacan doesn't take anything for granted, it seems to me. He doesn't assume that um, uh, when Socrates speaks, that's what Plato intends us to come away with. And in fact, in this dialogue, more than in any other one, um, uh, Lacan seems to see uh, a way in which um, Plato's making fun of Socrates, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe doesn't even know what he's doing, right? He just thinks it's sort of funny, you know, <laughs> that, uh, you know, to have Diatomus speak <laughs> instead of Socrates at a certain point and to have Socrates rolling his eyes at a certain moment during Diotima's Diat- mm-hmm. dialogue, or not even a dialogue, a monologue, and it goes on and on and on. And the ladder of love, my God, you know, every um, philosopher... That I've ever encountered, you know, thinks that that is the neck plus ultra, you know, the sort of the absolute platonic vision of what love is. This sort of progression towards beauty and the forms. And then beauty gets chucked out the window, actually, and it's all about simply knowledge. It, at first, it becomes knowledge of beauty, and then it's knowledge itself, which is the end in itself. And love is thrown out the window. Beauty is thrown out the window, <laughs> and you know. So, what I find intriguing about um, Lacan's reading is that by not taking anything uh, for granted and looking at all these just these little asides, these little moments where Socrates says to Diotima. Really? Is that what it's really like? But mm-hmm. right. We have to add a little staging, maybe a little, you know, imagining the person on stage and why he would say this and what sort of facial gesture <laughs> may go with that. But um, there are these hints, along with the hiccups, that um, people are making fun of each other in the course of mm. this dialogue. Yeah. And you really bring that to life in, in the
0: book. It's um, it, it's a really nice uh, companion piece mm-hmm. to the symposium, and, and I'm sure primer to to the transference seminar. Um, we're starting know. to run out of time. But in five minutes, <laughs> could we, I think it would be very interesting to talk a little bit about um, the yeah. idea of the Agalma as, as perhaps one of the, the central things that, that Lacan takes from the symposium. Um, and also, um, so, so it's a double question, there's that. And, and how it brings about this, this well-known idea that the, of Lacan's idea of love as giving what you don't have Um, The the reason being that this has become a bit of an empty refrain for some people, and Mm -hmm. it would be nice to to bring it back to how it originated from the symposium.
1: Right. Well, it's a a rather um, complicated origin, I guess. Um, There is one line in the symposium uh, um, where... um, I think it's uh, Socrates himself who says to um, Agathon, uh, "You know, you can't give something to someone that he doesn't that you don't have, right?" And of course, Lacan's whole thesis is the exact opposite Mm, of that. mm, mm. Um, But I think he'd been playing around with that already for a number of years, and I'm not exactly sure where that comes from. He um, he discusses, as you recall, uh, the uh, Freud's case of the young homosexual woman, and one of his comments there is that what the woman wants to show her father is how to give someone who doesn't have much of anything. Um, uh, so he's already playing around with this notion of lack and love related to lack uh, and um, obviously lack, lack is at the um, uh, the core of his notion of desire uh, in the first place. Um, for many years, even prior to to this seminar, um, what what he adds in um, in this seminar, uh, and as growing out of the reading of Socrates, is this idea that there's something in the partner that drives us crazy, that turns us on, that um, uh, drives us to distraction, um, which the partner doesn't know he or she has, uh, or what it might be or what it looks like or how it operates. Um, and, um, and this grows right out of, uh, what, um, Alcibiades says about Socrates right that he's got these amazing things inside of him that no one sees he's this ugly shell right, but inside right. there's this treasure there's this absolute unbelievable magical ornament um, uh, prize um, <clears throat> and um, and the word itself is related to the something the Trojan horse is called in Greek literature in mm. In, mm. The, in the uh, in the Iliad and so Lagan sets about trying to ponder what this is and he decides that there's a kind of structural analogy between what Alcibiades says about Socrates and what the analyst often says about the analyst that there's something that drives the Analizan crazy about uh, the analyst but we're not sure what it is um, and um, uh, and so I think he begins to contemplate that and and um, it, he's aware, of course, that for each analyst, and it's something different, even though it might be the same analyst, right? Mm-hmm. So, in one case, it could have something to do with the look; it could have something to do with the voices um, of the things as well, and um, uh, sometimes even just a certain kind of attitude, as expressed in the voice and the look and uh, and bodily postures and so on, and um, and he associates that with um, not yet in seminar 8 with with the real it's sort of it's coming by seminar 11 it's certainly there Mm. maybe even in um, seminar 9 identification but I haven't looked at that again in a while Um, and then there's a difficult articulation between lack giving your lack and object A and so uh, to give something that you don't have um uh, there's some simple ways of talking about it but it's uh, perhaps you know we have to figure out how to articulate that with object a how is it that you embody something that you don't know you have or even think you have and in socrates case that you deny that you have mm-hmm. right there's nothing in me that's lovable right that seems to be Socrates' fundamental position how it is then that you're able to embody that and somehow give that to a partner is um, is quite unclear. The the sort of more typical notion let's say, um, it, it seems to me that um, uh, behind this notion of love is giving what you don't have is that you make it very clear to your partner that there's something that's missing in you, there's something you feel you don't have there's some failing or weakness or a lack or gap in yourself mm-hmm. and that somehow that, that they address that uh, in you um, there are other ways of talking about it where Lacan talks about it uh, in the case of André Gide that somehow he gave his wife immortality by writing about her even though he didn't have immortality mm-hmm. and we could by analogy we could say that there are things um, where a partner is able to somehow give you hope or confidence in yourself even though your partner has lost all hope Mm. uh or uh doesn't have much confidence about the future and so on. So there's a there's a, that's a sort of another gloss I think on love is giving what you don't have. But um then the articulation between that sort of giving what you don't have and object A, uh, that's um, obviously object A is not a possession of ours, right? Mm. Um, it's something somebody else sees in us almost magically and we hope it doesn't go away <laughs> because we might get lucky and it might stay a long time but maybe maybe it doesn't um, I'm not sure I really answered that but it's uh, I think it's a rather complicated
0: uh, it's
1: definitely uh, one for
0: the next uh, <laughs> episode <laughs> I think. Um, we're almost out of time and I'm, I'm wondering um, perhaps there's, there's there's time for a final question um, there 's so much that we didn 't talk about it would have been so nice to 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 have, to to have perhaps talked a bit more about the ramifications for analytic practice because obviously that's that 's just a, a, a whole other can of worms about how love is played out in the analytic setting and and, and that there, you know there have been some do's and don 'ts of that that um, Lacan encourages us not to ignore. Um but I, I feel as though if we were to speak about that, we'd be another half hour, which we don't, which we don't have. <laughs> <And> then, uh, <laughs> so let's do it. Uh, well,
1: <laughs> I would just say, you know, I, that's what I'm going to talk about tomorrow. Fantastic. Uh, uh, quite a bit, uh, love in the analytic setting, it's love right. as it enters in, love and hate as they enter into transference, uh, and counter-transference. But I, I, just, I would just make one, um a little point, which is I think that, um I think Lacan points to a kind of danger for analysts of um, the analytic position is one where the analyst is structurally put in the position of the lover and the analyst and in the position of the beloved. And I think Lacan seems to be concerned that analysts not turn the tables um, and uh, want to play the position of the beloved. And I think that that is a real danger for analysts. And that there are plenty of analysts who do want to be loved by their patients, and it's something I hear a lot of complaints about by patients who then leave that analyst and go mm-hmm. seek elsewhere, mm-hmm. um, or who, who simply leave analysis, and you know that uh, feeling that somehow the analysis was more for the analyst and not for them. Mm-hmm. So I think there's something that's just one of the little, com- very concrete things I think that comes out of. Mm-hmm. Um, that we can, we can um, uh, extrapolate from uh, Lacan's work on the symposium. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And Black uh, on love is, is just very rich when it comes to this question of analytic practice. Um, okay. I'm, I'm afraid that we, we've run out of time. Uh, so it just really remains to say thank you so
1: much for joining us, Bruce. Uh, well, thank you so much for having me and for wanting to do this interview. Uh, it was a great pleasure for me.